Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be discussing the Omega Point and the evolution of God. My guest is Peter Todd, who is a Jungian psychotherapist based in Sydney, Australia. Peter is the author of The Individuation of God, Integrating Science and Religion. Welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, Jeffrey, and to be talking about TAR. I actually published a paper in TAR Studies, the Journal of the American TAR Association, on his work, so I'm quite prepared for this interview. When we talk about the Omega Point, I would imagine many of our viewers will have heard the phrase uh, that, that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, uh, but Teilhard focused particularly on uh, the Omega aspect of, of that phrase, but maybe you could provide a little background as, as to what uh, that phrase, the Alpha and the Omega, and particularly the Omega, refers to. But in traditional theology, the Alpha and the Omega are part of the Easter liturgy, which has direct reference to the incarnation of Christ and various matters of uh, Catholic doctrine. But I think understood more deeply, we're talking about an archetypal process and Tao's notion of an Omega point being uh, thoroughly uh, inseminated by the evolutionary thought for which he was silenced by prior to uh, Vatican II. And as we have discussed previously, he's not only has a feast day with the Episcopalian Church in the United States, he is uh, being considered for canonization in the Roman Catholic Church who silenced him in his lifetime. However, I think what you may want to talk about is more not just the Omega point as a concept, but the Omega point as the culmination of an entire evolutionary process where consciousness and the divine are consummated in mystical union. I personally, uh, not being a Christian and really never having been educated in these concepts, imagine that Alpha and Omega, in effect, refer to the creation of the universe and, and the end of the universe as we know it. That's been the traditional understanding, yes. But Teilhard was an evolutionary scientist. I think it's very interesting that uh, uh, he did uh, a lot of his work right in between Vatican I and Vatican II, uh, right uh, sort of in that never-never space where the church was beginning to, to ponder how it's going to deal with the uh, science of evolution from a theological perspective. Absolutely. And even John Paul II once made the remark not long before he departed that evolution is no longer a theory. That's not a, quite a turnaround for uh, the papacy with regard to a notion that was considered totally heretical in Teilhard's time, that is to say the attempt to integrate evolution with uh, process theology. So it seems that Teilhard is being vindicated. I, I gather that prior to Vatican II, the, the attitude was sort of that because the teachings of the church were eternal, that, that therefore the, the idea of uh, evolution, particularly as it might apply to culture, uh, was inconsistent. 
it was inconsistent with their traditional theology and with the still held widely belief in human beings having descended from a, an original primordial couple, namely the Adam and Eve story in Genesis. That was the way things were before Vatican II, and a lot has, a lot has changed since then. Uh, largely, I think, due to the influence of people like Tayar and the added influence of people like Sir Julian Huxley, the evolutionary biologist, who provided a glowing endorsement of Tayar's thought in Tayar's magnum opus, The Phenomenon of Man. If we look at uh, evolutionary theory, the whole process of evolution that's taken place over billions of years on this planet, billions of years before the first human ever appeared, uh, one might think of it as uh, matter itself evolving to become more and, and more spiritualized. Yes, that would be a good way of phrasing it. I think perhaps I'd have a slight little nuance with respect to that, however, and make the comment that the notion of archetypes as cosmic ordering and regulating principles, which are timeless and eternal, and David Bohm's notion of active information as the link between mind and matter and his idea of humanity participating in a collective mind extending indefinitely beyond the human species as a whole, are very parallel ways of understanding evolution, not just uh, with the arrival of Homo sapiens and with reflective consciousness, but that mind, rudimentary mind-like qualities are present throughout the universe and we can think of them as the imprint of the cosmic archetypes as ordering and regulating principles or David Bohm's um, quantum information. I myself have been influenced by a, a cosmologist named Arthur M. Young, with whom I had the privilege of, of living for a brief period of time when he moved to Berkeley, California, when I was a student and opened the Institute for the Study of Consciousness and invited me to move in with him. And he envisioned uh, the descent of spirit into matter and then the ascent back to spirit uh, as the process in, in which we're now engaged. And uh, I know esoteric scholars like Manley Hall have, have also described similar processes uh, that come from various uh, esoteric uh, uh, and hermetic uh, writers over the centuries. Well, your idea of the, there being a descent of spirit into matter is very similar to regarding the incarnation not as a singular historical event but as a continuing process and as one that is evolutionary in nature. So the divine, the numinous principle, if you like, is implicit in cosmology and evolution that only becomes conscious of itself in and through a species endowed with reflective consciousness and able to contemplate it. Teilhard, being a devout Christian, uh, as I understand it, believed that Christ himself was sort of a, a, an attractor, uh, drawing evolution, uh, drawing matter uh, closer and closer to his own Christ-like nature. Yes, well, Teilhard wrote in The Future of Man, one of his other texts, of the uh, cosmic Christ as the culmination at the omega point of evolution, that there would be an appearance of this divine, something like a divine or archetypal figure, somewhere at, towards the end of evolution, as we understand it. 
which he referred to as the cosmic Christ. I don't think he had a, any idea of there being a reincarnation of the original historic Christ. There's nothing in his writing to suggest that. I think it's much more enlightened to think of a, maybe the Christ event in history being a revelation to humanity of a God already incarnate in uh, evolution and um, cosmology but and continuing to become incarnate through human beings. It's just such a novel idea of the time. I don't think any other religious tradition had actually conceptualised the notion of uh, the entangled state of God and humanity or of the incarnation of the divine through historic time. Known by people like Tara, of course, as the, the cosmic Christ towards whom we are summoned, as it were. Did I understand you correctly to suggest that uh, the human species is the embodiment of perfected consciousness? Is, is that what I heard you say? I don't think I said perfected consciousness. I think reflective consciousness, that is, a consciousness that's able to contemplate itself and the universe and to, uh, as I said in a previous interview, be actors and not spectators in the cosmic drama. Reflective consciousness, which which I suppose is a stage on the way to a more perfected consciousness. And as Teilhard put it, we are nothing else than evolution become conscious of itself. Uh, through us, the universe has evolved a mirror to reflect upon itself and in which its very existence is revealed, straight from the hand of a Jesuit paleontologist. Rather unbelievable, really. Well, it's a remarkable insight, and I think uh, <laughs> it's it's worth contemplating. It really uh, helps us to understand uh, our unique position in the universe. And I think the humanists are very much on side with this too, with their notion of identical peak identity experiences and mysticism. I think what they're referring to is an emerging panentheistic theology, which is its in essence mystical in nature and involving uh, an interconnectedness between all human beings and the ecosystem that support them and a resacralization of a world which has largely lost its soul, as uh, Jung put it. That's a wonderful word, panentheistic. Uh, I understand from going through uh, some of your papers that it it really represents a, a sort of a bridge between theism the idea that uh, God created the universe and is independent or separate from the universe, and pantheism, the idea that uh, uh, everything is God, that God is the universe. Well, that's Spinoza's doctrine, Deus seo e natura, God identical with nature. Although I think Spinoza has been much misunderstood because there's always a something more than God being identical with, uh, with nature. The idea being that uh, the universe, we and uh, everything we experience in the physical universe exists within God, but that God is also uh, greater than just what we experience as, uh, as our uh, physical uh, beings and uh, sensory experiences. Yes, or another way of phrasing that might be to say uh, that... Uh a deus implicitus, a God is implicit. God is implicit in uh, cosmology and evolution and becomes explicit, deus explicitus, through our human beings as reflectively conscious agents directing the future of cosmic evolution, as Niels Bohr put it. And I think that's very much on a par with uh, Teilhard's thought and writing. 
I understand, Peter, that Tehard expected us to play a role in evolution at this point. He recognized uh, the contribution of of culture itself to the evolutionary process. Yes, you're quite right. And as Julian Huxley wrote in his endorsement of Tehard's Phenomenon of Man, uh, not only does humankind discover that we evolution become conscious of itself, but in fact, more importantly, perhaps, in terms of what you're saying, as a species, we are at least potentially directing the future of evolution on this planet, which is rather different to being merely passive and reactive or unconscious of an evolutionary process of which we are part. Let's review the concept of the newosphere. Uh, I know we've talked about it in our previous interview on Teilhard, but I think it's quite relevant in uh, discussing the Omega Point. Well, I think what Latour really meant by the noosphere, and it's clearly present in his writings, was that the noosphere is a membrane of consciousness and meaning imposed upon the already existing biosphere, which emerged, of course, from a geosphere. So the world, if you like, is enveloped or embraced by this noosphere or meaning and consciousness and potentially holding human beings together through the energies of love, about which Tara wrote something very beautiful, which I mentioned in the previous interview, but I might refer to it again in this one as relevant. Do you mind if I just read that? Yeah, please do. Towards the end of his life, in uh, a little essay called Exploring the Future, written as back as 1936, Tara wrote, The day will come when after harnessing space, the winds, the tides and gravitation, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And on that day, for the second time in the history of the world, we shall have discovered fire. Well, that's a beautiful quote, and and I have to say, especially based on our previous interview about the survival of humanity, uh, love is is needed more and more now, uh, probably more than uh, perhaps ever before in the history of humanity. Absolutely, and I would perceive the energies of love, or even love between human beings, at a less sublime level than species level, as quite different from something purely biological or physical. It's actually mystical and sacred and akin to the love of God or the divine, if you will, imminent and transcendent. So it's a spiritual love, and that would mean, as human beings are turned on, or as the fire is kindled, as Tao put it, more and more of us would grasp this love of species and identification with species as well as with God understood in some form that's not anthropomorphic. Now, I just wanted to comment on something you said earlier whilst I think of it, uh, Jeff. I think the God that you were referring to in traditional theology was what I call a deus absconditus. It's as if that God somehow miraculously intervened in creating the universe and life on earth as depicted in scripture, but then removed himself from the world and was no longer present in it or remaining only as an interventionist God. Whereas I think that led, as Roderick Maine put it, to traditional theism, which in turn resulted in disenchantment with theism because 
you know, what can a remote God have to offer us if not uh, being within and suffering with us, enjoying with us, evolving with us, intimately related to us, entangled with us? I think that's a much more uh, human-friendly concept of the numinous than that of traditional theology. Roderick Main talked about the disenchantment with theism that resulted precisely because the old interventionist God had become an irrelevant hypothesis since Newton. And I agree. In that sense, I would be an atheist. I know that uh, many traditional theologists talk about how in biblical times God would intervene in the affairs of humans and, and God would speak to people, uh, but that this no longer happens anymore. Uh, not, in, not in that sense. I think we're much more attuned these days to the extraordinary reality and power of Jung's collective unconscious with its archetypes, including the numinous self-archetype, which we experience towards the during the individuation process as we connect with something numinous and divine. And Jung actually made an interesting comment, which was that he found it very difficult to distinguish between the numinous self-archetype in the individuation process and an unconscious God image. And Roderick Main developed those ideas a bit further in his work on uh, the uh, panentheism as undoing the disenchantment created by traditional theism. And I think Tayar's work lends itself to re-enchantment of the world with a sense of it, its sacredness and divinity rather than just being something that's there for us to use and consume and render uninhabitable. I gather that uh, Teilhard considered uh, Christ himself, its, itself, uh, dare I say herself, a, as a uh, the force behind evolution, that, that one might thereby uh, understand Christ as, as existing within nature. Absolutely, and I think Tars' most profound statement of that was written on Maundy Thursday, 1955, just before his death on Easter Sunday, 1955, and what he wrote was on Parsi Panta Theos, that God may be all in all. All in all. All in all. Imminent and transcendent. Uh, you, you know, of, of, I'm laughing because it reminds me of a, a time I was with uh, uh, an individual who had a great influence on my life, who I considered a mentor, Jean Houston, who knew Taird. Uh When she was a child, she would take walks with him in Central Park in New York. Uh, and even though he had been silenced by the Vatican, I think he uh, enjoyed his walks with this young girl whom he could teach. And, and she had us do an exercise where she would have us say, uh, I'm in the middle of it, it's in the middle of me. How beautiful. Transcending space, time and causality. A sort of a, a mantra or, or a chant that we would repeat and uh, it would take us uh, into a very deep place. I think Gene Houston had a remarkable gift in that regard and I have to think that uh, the fact that she knew Teilhard as a child uh, uh, was a very significant influence on uh, the remarkable work she's done as an adult.
Yes, I think you've mentioned that she became a great spiritual teacher herself. Yes, she has, and is still alive and, and still teaching. Uh, so I would certainly encourage uh, our viewers, uh, if, if they want to have a little taste of uh, somebody who knew Teilhard, uh, to uh, experience uh, videos or seminars or workshops or uh, anything that might books uh, of, of Jean Houston, because uh, one might say she's, uh, in, in her own way, carrying on that lineage, as are you. I think she and Tayar and you, and perhaps myself to some extent, are actually concelebrants in a figurative Eucharistic feast or banquet in which human beings can all partake and experience uh, a re-spiritualization and a sense of mystical connection with something far beyond the finiteness of the ego. And perhaps I emphasize that because I think that's one of the contingently necessary conditions for us to move beyond the uh, dangerous situation that the world is in. Only egotism run riot or gross megalomania could lead any world leader to want to use the nuclear code to destroy other nations or, for that matter, for us to knowingly go on doing things that we can avoid doing to contribute to climate change. Peter, as I recall, Teilhard died in 1954. He didn't live to see the Internet age or satellites circling the globe. Uh, but I believe he did appreciate, even in his lifetime, that humans were uh, creating all of this technology and the technology was becoming part of us in a way that he expected uh, the humankind and, and technology to sort of uh, together become part of uh, what he called the noosphere. Uh, I kind of think of uh, technology such as the technology we're using at this moment uh, as an extension of our nervous systems. And uh, I gather that Teilhard saw it in, in a similar way. I think absolutely he did and wrote as much in some of his uh, published works. And many people have noted that in the Teilhard Studies Journal produced by the American Teilhard Association. I think what you're proposing is quite the reverse, you see, of the mechanization you referred to in a previous interview, which would tend to dehumanize human beings and demotivate them for having any sense of species or connection to the world or any sense of spiritualization of the world. What you're referring to is quite the opposite of that, if you like. And that means human beings evolving to a point where there is a far greater sense of the sacredness and interconnectedness of all beings, or to use a polite phrase, a spiritual awakening, but on the level of species, not just of individuals. Yes, Peter, I think you're right. Uh, uh, but I'm aware of the fact that technology is sort of a double-edged sword, that uh, we get so infatuated with technology that we often buy into the ideology uh, behind technology, which is uh, materialism, and, and don't appreciate that uh, technology can be viewed uh, in a completely different way. I absolutely agree, but as we discussed, I think the danger with technology is that we can tend to fall in love with or make numinous the technical product of our own creativity almost as a kind of uh, substitute for a numinous dimension that is not just technology. 
So yes, you say, as you say, it's a two-edged sword. It can be a catalyst for enormous transformation in the world, or it can contribute, as it is already in some places, to the increasing mechanization and depersonalization of people and their extermination. We've had enough warnings of that. Now, I know the uh, physicist uh, Frank Tipler has written about the Omega Point uh, in in terms of uh, the resurrection of all humanity in in, in a virtual space. Uh, are you familiar with his work, Peter? No, I'm not, but I'm familiar with the idea. And that's not too far distant from some traditional theologians who think of a literal uh, second coming of Christ and a literal resurrection of all human beings that have ever existed in bodily form. Personally, I find that a bit too concrete and simplistic and not in the least symbolic or archetypal. So uh, I have reservations about that. Yeah, I I would feel the same way about it, but I, I think it's an interesting effort to... Uh, uh, sort of uh, build upon Teilhard's work. I think Teilhard influenced Tipler in in coming up with uh, some of these notions. But I gather that that Teilhard is really suggesting that uh, even if uh, the universe dies itself in some sort of great crunch, if if the sun goes extinct, uh, that humanity uh, will survive in spirit. Well, absolutely, and isn't that beautifully compatible with the notion of dual aspect monism where mind and spirit are just as much fundamental features of reality as is matter itself. I think that's one reason I adopt that particular framework for ontology and epistemology rather than ontological idealism because that has no place for the material or for the body or for the earth in material form. Well, I'm uh, personally not going to take sides <laughs> in in that debate. I think whether we're talking about ontological idealism or panpsychism or uh, dual aspect monism, uh, from my perspective at least, the the important thing is that these are all viable uh, alternatives, along with dualism, to uh, materialism per se. And uh, uh, it's important that we look at all these alternatives. I quite agree, and what they all have in common is, of course, uh, a place for mind and psyche and spirit in the cosmos, not just uh, material things or technology. That is just simply to reinstate part of our humanity that many of us have lost, and that is the, the soul that Jung refers to. And he wrote about, as you know, the animal mundi, the world soul, you see. So I think what some of these writers are getting at is something like a god archetype or a world soul, but not too literally understood, rather symbolically. Yeah, as as a parapsychologist, I'm interested in all of these metaphysical alternatives because I think they all allow for the data, the empirical data that uh, we see in parapsychology practically every day, and that you experience quite directly in in your own near death experience. Yes, and I'm very encouraged uh, to note that there's a lot of research being done into NDEs where the phenomenological accounts have mystical elements that are almost indistinguishable from one another, which suggests to me that there's something archetypal at work in the NDE as well as mystical. 
It's a glorious experience and very transformative, and it results, as you know, in a great reduction in one's fear of death. It means has implications for continuity beyond our bodily death and disintegration. Well, to me, the uh, Omega point is intriguing because uh, it suggests that uh, the the kind of awakening that I've experienced in my life, uh, that thousands of our viewers have experienced, that you've experienced, is is. Uh, not just an accident because you happen to, uh, you know, have a, a traumatic surgery, but is part of a larger uh, spiritualization of, of humanity uh, that is going on uh, right now. For all of our faults, or for all of our problems, it it seems as if uh, we are being drawn toward a, a higher awareness, sometimes in spite of ourselves. And I think that's what Tao meant by discovering humanity, discovering a sense of telos or direction in the evolutionary process, which to a large extent, at least on Earth, we are collectively responsible for directing the future of cultural and spiritual evolution. I referred earlier to uh, one of my mentors, Arthur M. Young, who wrote a book, uh, The Reflexive Universe. Uh, I, I think of his work as in some ways being uh, of comparable significance to that of Teilhard. And he suggested, based on uh, his theorizing, that modern humans, such as ourselves, we stand in, in relationship to our potential as humans, roughly in, in the same uh, proportion as clams would stand in relationship to the entire animal kingdom. Yes, yes. So th that the uh, uh, future evolution, you know, we may, if, if we survive as spiritual beings, uh, we may have uh, billions of years of, of evolution and uh, we may evolve to levels uh, that are almost inconceivable to us uh, with our present primate brains. Well, when we consider, you know, the cultural evolution of humanity, both in science and the humanities and now panentheistic theology that has occurred in the last hundred years. I mean, one mind, one's mind might be rather overawed by the fact that we still probably have a few billion years to go before the sun expands and devours the earth anyway. So we, our growth spiritually and as conscious beings seems to be exponential and expanding and unending until its final consummation, as Tao would put it, at point omega, whenever that is. Yes, when you consider, for example, that uh, Jesus walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, uh, one might say that humanity as a whole is still in its infancy compared to where uh, we may yet someday be. I totally agree. We are still evolving. Uh, in fact, Tao wrote that we're both products of evolution, an un unfinished product of an evolution yet to come. And I think that's what you're referring to. It is indeed, Peter, and it, it seems to me that uh, uh, 
from my point of view, I, I think that's something I welcome. It's something I look forward to. It's something I love to be able to share with uh, our viewers. I, I hope that uh, a conversation like this inspires people to consider uh, uh, the enormous prospects that, that face us. And of course, as you've pointed out, especially in our previous interview, the uh, the responsibility that uh, we also face to uh, nurture the planet, to uh, help to uh, play our role in the uh, re-enchantment of the world. Absolutely. Re-enchantment of the world is very much where it's at and so sadly lacking in uh, those ideologies which basically want to dominate the world and suppress individuation, as Jung would put it, and have, have everyone conform to an ideology, whether dialectical materialism or any other. National socialism is just as destructive, but a lot of these things are driven by a religious devotion to ideologies without any recognition that they're actually embracing a form of uh, secular theology. But, but I have to say, and I'm speaking now as, as a person who was uh, born and, and raised uh, in the Jewish faith and, and happy uh, to have done so, that uh, when Teilhard writes about the cosmic Christ as, as an evolutionary force, I can relate to it wholeheartedly. And uh, it's, it's very yeah, uplifting to me to think that uh, uh, a force such as the cosmic Christ uh, is, exists and at some level is available to uh, to every human being that we don't have to become uh, slaves to to a t totalitarian materialistic ideology or to a limited religious ideology either I think the time for those has actually passed and I think there is much in Judaism in the Kabbalah for example which is distinctly mystical and indeed I detect in what little reading I've been able to do in Judaism with the help of some of my Jewish friends and colleagues over the years, that it too has very profoundly obvious panentheistic evolving elements to it if the writings aren't taken too literally but understood as referring to a process of becoming rather than being fossilized and fixed in time. Uh, some viewers have commented from time to time that the New Thinking Aloud series seems to be hostile to Christianity. And uh, actually, I don't feel that way at all. I feel, uh, if anything, a certain hostility perhaps to f the fundamentalisms of, of any religious faith uh, and the dogmatisms of any religious faith. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, the reason we do so many programs about uh, so many different perspectives on consciousness and spirituality is because I feel that uh, as humans, we are the inheritors of every spiritual tradition on this planet. They are all our birthright. And uh, although I was born into the Jewish faith, I feel uh, that uh, I have, I've inherited uh, every faith on the planet, to be honest, in including science. Of course, and that's one of the other one of the other uh, results of the global noosphere and of interfaith dialogue. The people are looking for the commonalities, which very often turn out to be helped by an understanding of the collective unconscious and the archetypes, including the 
God archetype, which doesn't have any particular uh, faith tradition attached to it. Tao might write about the cosmic Christ, but I mean, Jung, in his collected works, particularly volume 11, wrote a great deal about the commonalities in the essay Answer to Job, for example, uh, where he writes of a transcendent God and of an unconscious that's coextensive with the cosmos and of mysticism and holism as important. And I think that all those elements are potentially present in the world's faith traditions, which will need to evolve beyond fundamentalism. I mean, quite frankly, Jeff, I see fundamentalisms in any form, religious or otherwise, as being very limiting and, in fact, quite dangerous because the adherence to those fundamentalisms become very prone to projecting their own shadow qualities onto other people and justified, therefore, in persecuting and uh, harming them. Well, we're uh, talking right now at the beginning of uh, the third millennium of the Christian calendar, and I know you and I have done a, a previous interview on theology for the third millennium. I think it's fair to say that such a theology will take centuries to develop, but uh, from our perspective right now, we we can see the outlines of, of what might come. Uh, you, in particular, from having had a near-death experience, but also from your studies of Jung and Teilhard and uh, quantum physics, there there is a sense, as expressed in the subtitle of your book, that, that we can see that science and religion have the potential to be integrated. Yes, and they're both pathways to numinous experience, if uh, understood more profoundly and not too concretely. Well, Peter Todd, once again, this has been a delightful discussion. I'm so happy to share your perspective uh, with our viewers. Uh, you bring uh, an enormous clarity of vision and uh, eloquence of, of description. So thank you once again for being with me. Thanks, Jeffrey. And it's wonderful to uh, be talking with somebody who emerged from a very different faith tradition and yet has so many ideas that seem to be compatible with those of Jung and Pauli and uh, those, of, those of us who become mystics, if not in early childhood, then as a result of phenomena like NDEs. Mm -hmm.